The word Christian can bring up all kinds of thoughts and images in our mind, some positive, some neutral, and some negative. And these thoughts can lead to all kinds of questions. Is God real? And if he is, does he care about me? How does science fit with Christianity? How can a good God allow how suffering? How can there be just one true religion? Is a religion just a crutch? What about all the contradictions in the Bible? What about those who how never can Jesus hear be the Jesus? only way to Why God? Why are there so is many the differences between the Christianity and other religions? Why are there so many different denominations? How am I supposed to take a blind leap of faith? We all have questions. What are yours? Text your questions to 210-880-2290 and come hang out with us starting Sunday, March the 17th, where we're going to answer some of the toughest questions people have with the Christian faith. Well, I'm excited about this new series we're kicking off next week. Before I get into my message, I wanted to say something about it. You know, we... Uh, provide a safe community where people can ask their hardest questions about our faith. That's a part of who we are as a church. We expect people to ask hard questions. I asked hard questions about the Christian faith when I was, you know, in that part of my journey. It's okay. And that is why we are here. And, uh, you know, I think that's a part of being the kind of church we are. Uh, if you're going to be the kind of church that's for people who don't get church and don't go to church, then you have to be willing to answer hard questions. And so for this, this next series, we're going to try to do our best to answer some of the uh, most challenging uh, questions people have and, and address some of the problems people have with Christianity. And uh, so, you know, for those of you who call City Church your church, that's, you know, for us to provide this safe community of grace. It's why I've been asking you to join me on a journey to help provide this safe community of grace. Uh, and, and this journey I've asked you to join me on it is to take a step of faith on a generosity journey. I've been honest with you guys this year. It takes about $75,000 a week, every week, to provide all of the services and programs that we provide here at City Church. And so I need everybody who calls City Church their church to join us in this journey. And this is what I mean by taking a step of faith. If you call City Church your church, but you've not given anything to the City Church movement, I'm asking you to become a new giver and give for the first time. If you've given something to the City Church movement, but you're not a regular giver, then I'm asking you to give consistently and become a consistent giver. So I want you to pray with your family, pray about what would be a step of faith for you, and then each time you get paid, give that to the City Church movement. If you're a consistent giver, but you would not really call yourself a significant percentage giver, then I'm asking you to become a percentage giver to the city church movement. And by that, I'm asking you to uh, give 10% of what you make to the city church movement. That's what the Bible calls tithing. And tithing is talked about from Genesis all the way to Jesus. And there's a blessing that comes with that. And, and I, I want you to be able to experience that in your life. And frankly, it's just what it takes to do church the way we do church these days. And then finally, if you're a percentage giver, but uh, if you're a percentage giver, then I'm asking you to take the step of faith of becoming a legacy giver. And by legacy giving, I'm encouraging you to prayerfully listen to God's leading in your life uh, when he uh, prompts you to give beyond the 10%, whether it's to a need we have at the church or a need in, with one of our social partners or a need in our community. Now, last week, uh, 10 o'clock, you know, if you were here at the 10 o'clock, all of the giving systems were down across the whole country uh, with anyone who used our giving platform. And so if you tried to give last week and you weren't able to, it was a technical issue that we didn't really have control of, but I think everything's fine this week, so I encourage you to catch up. 
Uh, the other thing I mentioned to you last week is that our church is committed to becoming a tithing church. And so uh, I've asked the elders uh, to allow us to rearrange our budget to give 10% away of whatever we receive to our general offerings to our social action partners. And so that's going to be our step of faith as a church. And so, uh, you know, I pray for us as we do this. I mean, I have a lot of things I have to, to help lead our staff with, but we're committed to this thing. And so I ask you to be committed too, and I believe God will bless you along the way because when you give here, lives change here, and your giving is making a difference. Now, this is the last week in our series that we've called It's Complicated. And in this series, we've been looking at God's purpose for our marriage and relationships because good relationships don't just happen. They take intentionality and purpose, but it's complicated. And there's probably no other aspect more complicated in marriage and relationships than sex. And so, yes, today we are going to talk about sex in church. And if you weren't here earlier and you've got kids with you, this is probably like a PG-11 kind of service. Like when my kids were 10 and 11, I would want them to hear everything I'm going to talk about today because I'll assure you they're being exposed to sex in media. Whether you know about it or not, they are. And so I would want them to hear about it. I want that to be your choice. And so I want to give you a heads up. So uh, now numerous factors make sex complicated in marriage and relationships, especially for those who believe in Jesus and seek to follow his teachings. One of the challenges we face today relates to, to, to the Christian view of sex and our culture's view of sex and how we think about, talk about, and uh, wrestle with the differences. Because up until recently, our culture and the Christian faith had a pretty similar view of sexuality. But after the uh, sexual revolution of the 1960s, uh, we have found ourselves, Christians have often found themselves at odds with the culture re uh, regarding sexuality. Because of this tension, many people in our society reject Christianity because of its view of sex. For instance, a famous 20th century atheist, Bertrand Russell, once famously said, the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. Isn't that interesting? And in our day, one of the leaders of the new atheist movement, Christ Christopher Hitchens, in his book called God is Not Great, said this about religion and sex. He said that all religious views should be banned from modern conversations about sex. He believed they had a negative influence on the conversation. And then Margaret Sanger, who is the founder of Planned Parenthood, argued that Christians promoted suppression as Christianity encourages singles to abstain from sex before marriage. So she viewed Christianity as having a negative impact on people sexually. Now, while I obviously don't agree with their perspective about this, I do think that religious leaders, especially Christian religious leaders, have to take some responsibility for distorting people's views about sex. Because for those of you who grew up in the church, you probably know what I'm talking about. Many church leaders talked about sex in a way that made people feel that it was shameful and wrong and naughty. You know what I'm saying? And so one critic sarcastically described the confusing Christian mess message about sex in this way. This is so funny. Sex is dirty, nasty, and vile. So save it for the one you love. Come on. Those of you who grew up in the church, you know what I'm talking about. And the goal, get this, was to keep primarily young uh, believers 
by using fear and intimidation and shame to intimidate them into good behavior. You know what I'm saying? But that strategy backfired. Because here's what happened. When people experienced sex, they didn't think it was dirty, nasty, and vile. They thought it was awesome. And then, because they realized they didn't trust the church and what the church said about it, they began to distrust the church about other issues, too. This issue matters. And then, others of you may have been influenced by our hypersexualized culture that has desensitized people to, set, uh, to, to the other, other aspects of sex that are not physical, the emotional, the relational, and the intimacy aspects of sex. It may have come through TV shows or movies or media. It may have come because your parents had affairs. It may come through pornography. But however it got into your heart and into your mind, it has taken something good and it has made it less than that. It maybe even it made it bad. And I, in a culture of hookups, sexting, swinging, one night stands, apps for affairs, Facebook affairs, and pornography, I think we need a redemptive conversation about sex. So let's just acknowledge that religious teachings that make you feel that sex is nasty, dirty, wrong, and shameful, that's not helpful. And we acknowledge that here. But I would also say that zero boundaries around sex that desensitizes people to the intimacy aspects of sex is also not good. What if there's another way Another way to view sex that is both redemptive, but with appropriate boundaries. And so that's what I want us to talk about uh, today. Uh, before we, we get into this, I, I do want to address, uh, uh, I want to say something about City Church, if I could. City Church is a messy church. And we are a messy church intentionally. Because uh, I think that's what you have to be to reach all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and life experiences and all kinds of beliefs. So we just assume that there are people here that are various, at various stages in their spiritual journeys and we assume that there are people here who have all different kinds of beliefs that may not be what we personally believe. And that's okay. I want you to know if that's you, you're welcome here. I think that's a part of being a messy church is we welcome people who don't believe what we believe. But I do want to take the next few moments to present to you what we believe about this issue, about sex, and why we believe it. Because uh, we believe that God created sex. And we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to give us eternal life forever. But not only that, he came to give us an abundant life here and now, and sex is a part of that. And so today I want us to explore what uh, God's purpose for sex. And before we get into that, I want us to, to review. Okay, so if you remember in the first week, we saw how Jesus turned people's attention back to God's original purpose for the marriage, for marriage and relationships, which was that two people become one. And that really guides both the marriage relationships and in our culture, the dating relationships, the purpose behind dating. And if you remember, he, he said that God's intent is that two different people from different perspectives with different backgrounds and whatever would become one. And if you remember, we also said that the kind of people who become one are the kind of people who want to get on the same team because they would rather win together than win alone. And then last week, we talked about a key characteristic that helped people become one, which is agape love. 
And agape love is active, not passive. Agape love is other-oriented, not self-oriented. Agape love is giving focused, not getting focused. So with this foundation, I want us to explore God's purpose for sex by looking at the scripture that describes when God created it. You ready? This is Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 31, excerpts from that passage. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So God created us male and female and then he blessed us. And did you know that this is the very first commandment in the whole Bible? Everybody thinks of commandments as negative things. Do you know what, want to know what the first commandment in the Bible is? Be fruitful and multiply. How awesome is God? In other words, this is the first commandment. Have a lot of sex. And just to make sure that you do what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to make it feel really good. In fact, I'm going to make it feel very good. And so God looked at all that he had made and he said, this is very good. <laughs> and you know what that tells us? First of all, God made you. That means you're very good. I don't care what anybody else has said about you. You're very good. And God made sex. And sex is very good. Sex is good morally. There is nothing shameful, nasty, vile, or dirty about sex in God's eyes, according to the scriptures. And God made sex good physically. God made sex feel good. He didn't have to do that. He could have he designed us to procreate like amoeba, you know, or the praying mantis where the praying mantis is made and then the female eats the male. I mean, that's pretty cool, you know, when you're watching on National Geographic, but that don't work for me as a male, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> My point is that God, in his design, made sex feel pleasurable, and that tells us that there's a purpose for pleasure in sex. God has a reason behind that design. And, so, and I think it goes back to, if you go back and look at his original design. So in the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish scriptures were written in the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew word uh, that translates sexual intercourse throughout the whole Bible is the word yada. Can you say yada with me? Yada. I just got you to say sex in church. <laughs> yada means literally to know, to know. And according to the Jewish scriptures, sex is more than a physical act. It's about intimate knowing. The scriptures teach that sex is a part of helping two people become one. So sex is a physical bond that also creates a relational and emotional bond. I'm going to say that again. Sex is a physical bond that helps create a relational and emotional bond between two people. And, and I want you to get this, sex does that even if that's not what you want. And that's important. And of course, today we understand the physiology behind what's going on. Dr. Stephen Arterburn noted, sexual pleasure is one of the most intense human experiences. When a person has sex, nerve endings release an opioid hormone, that's right, opioid, oxytocin into the brain. And this wonderful feeling helps bond 
two people together. So God's purpose behind sex is to help two people bond and become one. And isn't that interesting? That's his purpose for the marriage relationship, that two people would become one. And sex helps towards that end. Sex gives people an opioid high that makes them feel good. Yay, God. All right? So here's what I want us to get, because we're going somewhere with this. We're going on a journey. God made sex. God made sex good. So let's keep good what God made good. That's all I'm after. All right? Now, uh, so what did the first leaders of Jesus' movement say about keeping sex good? That's where we're going. So Jesus began his movement in modern-day Israel, which was ancient Judea, uh, Samaria, Galilee, right? And most of the people in that area shared a common belief about sexuality, and that was save sex for marriage and keep sex within marriage. Pretty simple, pretty basic. But as Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, they, they uh, came into a culture that did not share that view about sex. In fact, the Roman Empire believed in no sexual boundaries at all. I mean, the, the Roman Empire tolerated, get this, sexual slaves, including minors. They had parties that they called orgies, and I won't even go there. And they even had religions that revolved around sex. And so the apostle Paul was one of the first Christian leaders to bring the good news about Jesus into this hyper-sexualized culture, the Roman Empire. And he, he sought to teach them how to bring their whole lives uh, in, under the umbrella of Jesus' teachings and his way of life. And so in one letter, Paul wrote to believers in the city of Corinth, and they had asked him questions. So Paul didn't initiate this. They sent him questions asking about marriage, sex, and single living. And we're going to look, look at his responses to their questions about those issues. And what's interesting about Corinth is Corinth, I mean, within the Roman Empire that was hypersexualized, Corinth was even more so. Like, the rest of the Roman Empire viewed Corinthians as super promiscuous. They were like Las Vegas on steroids. And their culture revolved around the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love, and its 1,000 temple prostitutes. So in Corinth, their religion literally revolved around sex. And to these believers in Jesus who are now struggling with how to live now versus how they used to live, Paul wrote words helping them understand a new way of viewing sex. And so first Paul addresses why sex is such a big deal. You ready? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Paul writes, you say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, what's going on? Why is Paul talking about food and sex? I mean, that just sounds weird, right? You have to understand in the Roman culture, as in our culture, many people hold the same view as the Romans. In the Roman culture, sex was just a physical act. That's all it was. And that's why Paul's talking about, he, he's bringing up an argument that is made in their culture, which is, hey, when you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. When you're thirsty, what do you do? You drink. When you're sexually aroused, what do you do? Well, in their culture, you have sex with whomever, whenever, because it's just a physical act. It's just like eating and drinking. 
There was no relational value to it. There was no moral value attached to it. And that's what Paul is addressing here. He says, come on, you know it's more than that. In your own heart, even, even if you're new to Christianity, you don't believe what we believe you. In your heart, you know it's more than that. And that's what Paul's getting at. So why is sex such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? He addresses this now by speaking specifically to the Corinthians who, I mean, think about this. As they grew up, they went to the temple with prostitutes. That's what church was. Think about that. And so to them, he wrote these words. All right, you ready? Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become what? One. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is asserting that sex is more than just a physical act. It's about the whole person. As a human being, you are a whole person. You're not just a physical being. You're, we are not like animals. We have relationship. We have emotion. We have spirits. And we can make relational connections and emotional connections and spiritual connections. And Paul is calling us to a higher view of this, not a lower view of sex. It's a higher view. And that's why it matters. That's why this sex is such a big deal. So I, here's what I want you to get. Christians teach that sex is holistic. It's a holistic experience. So we should never get naked and vulnerable with someone physically unless we're willing to get naked and vulnerable with them relationally, emotionally, socially, and even economically and spiritually above all. Christianity teaches that sex is a selfless, selfless expression of oneness. It's a physical bond that creates an emotional and relational bond that unites us body, soul, and spirit. Christianity teaches that sex, that through sex, we actually transcend just the physical and there's a metaphysical experience with this. It's a higher view of sex. Our culture, many in our culture teach that sex is just a physical act. There is no moral connection or relational connection to it. And so, sex is about conquest. Men are arm candy. Women are prizes to bag. We put notches on our bedposts. That's why this conversation matters. Paul calls for people to flee from sexual immorality because it is an act against oneself. It's not an act against somebody else only. It's against yourself. Why? Because you take God's intent for sex and you make it less than what he created it to be. And that's not in your best interest. That's his point. That's what makes it immoral. And there, there are devastating consequences to this. Consider what happened to Lara. Now, I read about Lara's story in an article that was published in, in public, so I, I have permission to talk about her story. So she's 30, married with kids. Uh, she did not grow up uh, in the church, but she became a believer later in life uh, and is, was, was in the church, but she was struggling because she hates sin. 
of sin. I'm sorry. She hates sex. And that was creating conflict in her marriage. And so it was creating so much conflict uh, that their marriage was in trouble. So she went and saw a counselor to try to get help. And so the counselor you know, began to ask her questions about her own sexual history. And Lara told her that she had begun having sex as a teenager and had, known more than, had sex with more than 10 men in her life uh, up until she got married. But she failed to see how her past sexual history had anything to do with her present life. And so the counselor, as the counselor began to unpack Lara's story, she helped her to see that as she experienced those sexual uh, relationships where there was not really a relationship, where there was not the emotional and relational bonding that sex was intended to bring, she began to detach and compartmentalize the other parts of who she is to protect herself, to protect her from emotional pain. Because like you and me, she is a whole person. And so she subconsciously compartmentalized the other parts of who she was to protect herself. And, and nobody's, you know, I mean, that's understandable. But now she can't get it back. And she brought all of th that dysfunction into her current relationship. And I appreciate the fact, frankly, that she was willing to share her story publicly to help other people. That's why what we're talking about matters. And so the first believers established boundaries to keep good what God made good. And so let me just say, I'm just going to share a few boundaries with you. Let me just say, some people have like a negative view of boundaries. And, and so I'm going to say something about a perspective on boundaries. If you view boundaries as negative barriers that are keeping you from something good that would make your life better, you're never going to honor them. It's just the way it is. But if you view boundaries as positive barriers to keep something good good, you're more likely to honor them. And so can we, in just the next few moments, if you'll give me the chance, can you view these barriers we're going to look at possibly as something that could keep good what God meant to be good? Are you ready? All right, so the first barriers, uh, boundaries, I'm sorry, are to married couples. And this is recorded in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 3. Now for the matters you wrote about, because remember, they, they wrote him the letter and asked him these questions. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, so first of all, I like the fact that Paul acknowledges sexual passion. Because some people uh, say that Christians don't acknowledge it. No, are you kidding? They talk about it in the Bible. He acknowledges that God created us to have sexual passion. And then he gave a restrictive boundary and a proactive boundary. The, the restrictive boundary was keep sex within your marriage covenant. Pretty simple. The proactive boundary, he said, make sure you fulfill your marital duty to each other. So what's that all about? Well, that term translated marital duty is a legal term, and it literally means debt. And so Paul is casting vision as we pursue oneness as spouses for us to view ourselves as owing a debt to our spouse and that that would lead us to behave properly within the marriage related to sexual relations. But the key is how you view the debt. So it's not supposed to, it's not supposed to be like, well, you owe me a debt. It's supposed to be, I owe you a debt. How can, how can I show my love to you and make you and show you how I feel? You, you see the difference? 
And so, you know, when we're done with this message, I don't want to hear anyone say, when I didn't you hear Pastor Brent? He said, you owe me a sexual debt, so pay up. <laughs> don't go there. You know I have anger issues, and I'm, I'm, that make me angry. <laughs> Here, here's, here's the debt perspective. When, when I look to pay up, I'm looking to speak words of agape love and to show actions of agape love in our whole life. Sex is not about an act that takes place in a bed. It's about your whole life. You see the bigger perspective. And when you see it in that way, it changes everything because it's about bonding two people together. It's a higher calling. It's a bigger view of sex. The way we view this data is critical. And within married couples, I'm gonna say one more thing, then I'm gonna move on to singles. So singles, you need to perk up in a minute. Um, Yeah, I know you checked out. There's one more thing I think I need to say, and that is there's this destructive strategy that I've heard about, and I know it doesn't happen in city churches, then people, you know, you know, out there, but it's this strategy that some people will withhold sex to punish or control their spouses. Can you believe that? Now, all I want to say about that is this. Please don't make sex a weapon in a fight. When you make sex a weapon in a fight, that makes it less than what it could be. Please don't weaponize sex. Now, let, let me, can I just acknowledge that I, I want to affirm that if, if you're a spouse and you feel like you have no other way of addressing this conflict other than that, that, that is a serious issue. I don't want to minimize that. But please find another way to resolve the conflict. You may need to get some counseling, get someone to help you think through it. I just think it's a bad thing to weaponize sex. It just it makes it a not great thing. Okay, so boundaries for married couples. Keep sex in the marriage and keep sex good. That's pretty good. You remember that. Okay, next Paul gives some boundaries for singles. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9. Now, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but... If they cannot (coughs) control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And once again, I appreciate that Paul acknowledges that we have passion. We have sexual passion, and that's the way God wired us. And he says, look, if you have that passion, you know, you should abstain from sex before marriage. But if not, go ahead and get married. And I think, you know, if Paul lived in our day, On this one, he would probably quote the great theologian Beyonce on this. If you like it, you should have put a ring on it. Yeah, baby. I got an amen over here. Dude, you better go get that ring. Now, all all kidding aside, if you're single, this boundary says, make a vow of purity until you get married. And I lived under that boundary. If you're single but living with someone... I think this boundary says, okay, I need to ask myself a question. Am I willing to become one with this person and really go there and commit my life to this person and she to me or he to me? You know what I'm saying? And if that's so, then make a commitment, make a vow, make a marriage vow. Now, I'm asking you to, I know this is, this is different than our culture, and I'm asking you to trust God on this one. Part of the reason why I think you're here is you want to get God's influence in your life and you would like God's blessing in your life. And if I could say, 
you've probably tried life your own way, and I'm asking you to consider a new way. Now, I am not asking you to make a rash decision. You know what I'm saying? I want you to pray about this, think about this, but if you're ready to be committed, then make the commitment or make a change. Make a commitment or make a change. And let me also say, I know there's a practical thing in our culture as it relates to marriage. Because you know, through my, my, my years of pastoring here, I've talked to so many cohabiting couples who come to the point where they, they're convicted and they say, you know, we, we, we need to make this right. We want to get married. But then they say, but man, you know, the, the ceremony is going to cost $10,000. We don't have it. So, you know, it's going to be a year or two. I'm like, okay, hold on. There's a difference between making a commitment and having a ceremony. There's a difference between a wedding commitment and a wedding ceremony. They don't have to go together. And so this is what I encourage couples to do. If you're ready to get married, you can either go to the judge and get married down there with some family and friends. Or let me tell you how committed I am to this stuff. We'll marry you here where it don't cost you anything. And I've, I've married couples right out there by the baptismal pool with family and friends. And make the, co- the covenant, the commitment. That's, that's, that's what marriage is. It's the commitment to each other to be one. And then if you do want to have the ceremony later, great, great. You can spend all the money you want on that. But, but don't get them all mixed up, right? Make the commitment. When you know the right thing, do the right thing. That's what I'm saying. Okay, okay. Now, in the, in the few moments I have left, I want to give married couples primarily, but I think some of these boundaries work for singles, some boundaries, some proactive boundaries to help you protect these sexual boundaries because what I've talked to up to this point is physical sexual boundaries, but here's what I've noticed, and, and I've been a pastor for almost 30 years. Sometimes people who already believe these sexual physical boundaries break them because they forge an emotional, relational uh, relationship with someone that is not their spouse. And it leads them to break their physical sexual boundary. And so I'm going to give you a few boundaries to protect you from that. All right? Uh, this, these are uh, boundaries to protect your, you making an emotional connection with someone you know you shouldn't make an emotional connection with, if you, if you got what I'm saying. These are my boundaries. So my mentor, my spiritual mentor, decades ago led me to make these boundaries in my own life as a single person. You ready? First boundary, I don't meet alone with a person of the opposite gender. I mean, obviously, if, I, if you're not dating this person, if you're single, but if you're married, I don't meet alone with a person of the opposite gender, whether it's lunch, business meeting, business trip, uh, counseling session, in my case, that's part of my business. Now you say, well, God, pastor, here's what I do. I invite someone to join with us, and I do want you to understand, uh, I do mentor women in the ministry. We have four, I think, four female pastors on our staff. So I do mentor them and lead them and help them grow as pastors and and communicators. But either I have someone in the room with us or I have the door ajar and there are people in the office area. I'm I'm just more committed to to protecting my relationship, uh, my marriage and my covenant that I made so that there can be no emotional connection, okay, between us. Uh, Second boundary, I am careful with physical touch. Now, I do, you know, like I'll shake hands with a, a female that is not a family member or, you know, I'll, I'll do a hug if there are other people around and it's appropriate because I know this person well enough or, or the side hug thing, but I'm very careful with physical touch because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding at all, ever. Third boundary, I'm very careful with my words. If I pay a compliment, it's not about uh, her, as a, her looks, it's about maybe a dress or an outfit, you know. That's a pretty outfit, okay, that's fine. But you're pretty, or you look hot, 
Uh-uh. I don't, I don't flirt with or make any suggestive, have any suggestive conversations with a woman of, of you know, a woman, okay? Because here's, can I tell you what actually happens? That's what trollers do. People who are out there looking for an inappropriate relationship, they throw a thing out there and they hope you bite. I just, I, I ain't going there. And sometimes people have, have said about me that I'm sort of cold and aloof, sort of Mr. Spock-like. Okay. I, I don't have to be anything beyond that to you other than to my wife. Now, let me also say, I know that this message has presented some ideas and perspectives that are new to some of you. And, and that's part of why I'm doing it. And uh, I know some of you aren't, aren't here yet. And that's okay too. I'm, but I am encouraging you to, to consider what I've presented to you. And to examine your own heart. And whenever I speak on sex, I always like to end with a word of grace. Because above all, when Jesus started his movement, it was a movement of grace. It was a movement that was so filled with grace that people who had all kinds of sexual back, background and baggage still felt welcomed in his presence to believe in him and follow them. And no matter where you are in your journey, I want you to know this is a community of grace. It is a community of grace and truth, just like Jesus was a leader of grace and truth. But know that you are loved and we will help you in any way we can. All right? Let's pray together. So Lord God, uh, my prayer is that you would have, help each one of us with whatever decisions that we sense we need to make, whatever conversations that we need to have. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir within our hearts faith and courage to, to do the right thing, to uh, walk in your ways, to take steps of faith and to trust you with all of this, including our sexual lives. And Lord, as it gets messy, help, help us to have faith in the middle of the mess and to trust you with what's beyond that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.